turn to the book of Exodus chapter 14. And let's stand together for the reading of God's word, chapter 14, verse 19. Let's hear the word of God. And the angel of God, who went before the camp of Israel, moved and went behind them, and the pillar of cloud went from before them and stood behind them. So it came between the camp of the Egyptians and the camp of Israel. Thus it was a cloud of darkness to the one, and it gave light by night to the other, so that the one did not come near the other all that night. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the Lord caused the sea to go back by a strong east wind all that night, and made the sea into dry land, and the waters were divided. So the children of Israel went into the midst of the sea on the dry ground, and the waters were a wall to them on the right hand and on the left. And the Egyptians pursued and went after them into the midst of the sea, all Pharaoh's horses, his chariots, and, and his horsemen. Now it came to pass in the morning watch that the Lord looked down upon the army of the Egyptians through the pillar of fire and cloud, and he troubled the army of the Egyptians. And he took off their chariot wheels so that they drove them with difficulty. And the Egyptians said, Let us flee from the face of Israel, for the Lord fights for them against the Egyptians. Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand over the sea, that the waters may come back upon the Egyptians and on their chariots and on their horsemen. And Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and when the morning appeared, the sea returned to its full depth, while the Egyptians were fleeing into it. So the Lord overthrew the Egyptians in the midst of the sea. Then the waters returned and covered the chariots, the horsemen, and all the army of Pharaoh that came into the sea after them. Not so much as one of them remained. And the children of Israel had walked on dry land in the midst of the sea. And the waters were a wall to them on the right hand and on the left. So the Lord saved Israel that day out of the hand of the Egyptians. And Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Thus Israel saw the great work which the Lord had done in Egypt. So the people feared the Lord and believed the Lord and his servant Moses. Thus far the word of God. Let us pray. O oh Lord our God, we rejoice that uh, we are a people who have your word. Rejoice, Lord, that uh, you have established this as a particular church where your word is central, where it is preached and proclaimed, where we look to find Christ at work in the midst of the text, that Christ would be central, that we would uh, be uh, God-centered, Christ-honoring, and Holy Spirit dependent. Lord, we are dependent that your Spirit, who inspired Moses to record these words, would now be at work in our midst, that as they are spoken and as we hear them, that we would see and understand, that we would hear Christ, and that as your people you would build us up. Lord, yea, rebuke us, correct us, instruct us, 
and train us in righteousness for your name's sake, we pray, O God. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. This morning, I know I can say this to you, and you honestly agree. We face many fears. Daily, it would be. We face many fears. When, when we're young, we, we might be afraid of the dark. Maybe some of you adults still are. Uh, we fear monsters that we imagine are in our closet or under our bed. Some people are afraid of spiders and other snakes or heights or clowns. We have fears. Sometimes we are afraid of losing our job or getting cancer or having a heart attack. And so many young people today are afraid that they will lose their friends on social media, that they'll do something stupid and it'll cause them. These fears may seem silly to some, but they are very real to those who suffer with them. Fears is a very real part of our lives. But imagine that you're being chased by a band of very angry men, and they have powerful weapons. They have fast cars. You're running down the main street of Wakefield and guys with these souped-up sports cars that are coming after you and their guns protruding from the windows and they're firing away at you. Uh, you'd be fleeing as fast as your two feet could carry you. Uh, you would be filled with fear. Uh, you, you would be foolish not to be filled with fear. Well, Israel is in a worse situation than even these. They were traveling as families with their children, many carrying small infants. They had babies. There were elderly parents and grandparents in their midst. Plus, they had a lot of slow-moving livestock, goats and sheep and oxen with perhaps little calves at their side. They had carts and wagons loaded carrying heavy things. They were being pursued by an angry king with his army. And he is traveling in a fast chariot, his chariot especially, the finest chariot built. And, and he's chosen even his finest horses. Furthermore, he's got 600 of his best chariots. And the text has told us, and a great multitude of even more chariots. So he's in the best one. He's got 600 hopped up wheels and, and then chariots galore. And then there's the foot soldiers. And they're coming after Israel. He's racing to capture them. And what's in front of them? The sea. There's a body of water. Your God, the Lord, has promised to protect you in your life, has he not? And we have those moments when perhaps we're like Israel. We're like, how, Lord? How can this situation possibly work out? How can you possibly deliver me? You look at Israel here. There's no place to run. There's no place to hide. They have no weapons. Their situation seemed hopeless. It seemed to be certain that you know, some will be slaughtered, but they'll all be gathered up and taken right back to Egypt, right back into slavery. I suspect that some of you have felt like that. Maybe some of you feel that way right now with situations in your life. But the Lord, remember, 
capital L-O-R-D, means the covenant faithful Lord or God. The Lord of the Hebrews is a God of the impossible. And he has promised to save Israel. And he is the same yesterday, today, and forever. That same Lord that we hear about in this text is our Lord and our God. Use four main headings. I've really tried to focus on our main points over the last number of weeks. Perhaps you've noticed that. On the the Lord. What the Lord is doing. The covenant faithful Lord. We see that again this morning. We're going to look at the Lord's protection. The Lord's path to salvation. The Lord's path of destruction. And the Lord's lessons for his people. We begin then with the Lord's protection. Verse 19 and 20. We read how the angel of God who went before the camp of Israel, moved and went behind them. And the pillar and the cloud went from before them and stood behind them. And so what we see that the, the angel of God and the pillar and the cloud are not one and the same thing. They are both representations of God. The angel of God, as it's listed here, is a different way, a different way of referring to the one who we have often encounter in the scriptures as the angel of the Lord. And what have you come to understand about that? Well, that's the pre-incarnate Christ. It's a Christophany. Before Christ comes from heaven to earth, born of Mary, this is the second person of the Trinity on earth. It's, it's the one who appeared to Moses at the burning bush. He is there at this moment. And he has moved between his people and the armies of Israel. He's gone around behind them. And the cloud, which is... <coughs> a visible representation of God's presence in their midst, even as it shall be for 40 years. That also has moved around behind them. What do we see then? The Lord, you know, with his cloud, has positioned himself between his people and their enemy. He has become, as it were, a barrier before them. Verse 20 then describes something supernatural. Because our God is the God of supernatural. The cloud there between the armies of Israel, or the people of Israel, and the Egyptians behind them, to the Egyptians when they look at the cloud and it is this darkness. It's like that darkness that we heard in the plague. Is it the ninth plague where the, 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 the whole land of Egypt was filled with darkness for three days so that no one even moved? That's the same darkness. This darkness of the cloud is upon Egypt. They're, they're rendered, they can't move. They can't move forward. It's a barricade. It's a blockade. They're incapacitated. It's a, the army is suddenly impotent and powerless to move forward and go forth with their plan and their will. And yet the other side of the same cloud and to Israel is light. It's a great cloud of light. This is a remarkable event. And it's a foreshadowing event. That is, children, it means it's pointing to something that's going to happen. God is doing something we've seen throughout the book of Exodus. He discriminates. He makes a distinction between his people and those of the world. Egypt has already experienced great plagues, including the darkness. 
you would think that Pharaoh would remember how that turned out because what was it that broke Pharaoh's will? It was when God struck the firstborn throughout all the land, including Pharaoh's own firstborn son. And yet here Pharaoh has come out. He's been defeated. He's been humiliated. And yet he supposes himself to be the incarnation of Ra, the sun god. And there he is again, powerless. His armies are in darkness. Meanwhile, in the land where Israel is, it's a normal day. The cloud represents the glory of God to his covenant people. And to them he appears as light. But to the pagan idolaters, he appears as darkness. And you remember when we dealt with that particular plague, that darkness is a picture of judgment. Hell is not a place of delights and glory. I've worked with men, particularly when I worked around Navy guys, and they think, well, yeah, I figure I'm going to hell. I'll just party with my buddies. You know, that's where they're going to be as well. No, hell is a place of absolute darkness, even as what fell upon Egypt. And again, these pagan idolaters are reminded of the judgment of God. This cloud represents to the one blessings from the same God and to the other curses from the same God. Remember, again, that one of the great realities of God's wrath and judgment in hell will be a deep darkness, an isolation, a complete aloneness, a being in the presence of a holy God with the tares of God's holiness and in a darkness, no friends, no companions, all alone, reminded ever of your great sins and your rebellion against the Holy One of Heaven. Look at what Moses records as the result of God's protection with the cloud in the presence of the angel of God, even the Son of God, the Lord of hosts, who has come down, as it were, as a warrior for the people of God. In verse 20, at the end of that same verse that we were looking at, thus we read, so that the one did not come near the other all that night. This supernatural event, no Egyptian came near the Israelites and no Israelites came near the Egyptians. The Lord created a barrier of protection. Before we move on, some application, just thinking about this. Surely those of you who are hearing these words and know the blessings of God through the Son of Righteousness, that is the Lord Jesus Christ, you can relate. You can say, once I was blind and I lived in darkness, but now the Lord has redeemed me and I dwell in the kingdom of his light. You see that stark contrast even in this ancient account of events. The scripture speaks often of being Satan's kingdom in a kingdom of darkness and Christ who is light, a kingdom of light. We see that here in the distinction that the one did not come near the other. That's the picture of eternity. Jesus told the parable of the rich man and Lazarus, Lazarus laying at the door of the rich man, and they both died. And 
the rich man lies in the agonies and the fires of hell and it's a parable, not all the details are to be taken literally, but he cries out that he's looking across in the bosom of Abraham as Jesus tells the parable. He sees Lazarus, and here's this rich man in agony, yet he sees Lazarus as somebody to serve him. And he said, could you send him with just, just a drop of water to cool my tongue? And in the parable, what does Jesus say? It's not possible. There's a great chasm between here and there. And that's the way it will be for all eternity. And you see a picture of that in this situation God creates a great barrier between his own people and the people of the world well secondly we we see the Lord's path to salvation things things look good for Israel at this moment but but how will they escape and move on is this cloud of light and darkness is separation this barrier will is it going to linger on is this their permanent existence is this the way it will be no because the lord has promised they're going to a land uh, they need to move on from here so god is about to perform one of his greatest supernatural acts in history what do we read in verse 21 then moses stretched out his hand over the sea and the Lord caused the sea to go back by a strong east wind all that night and made the sea into dry land and the waters were divided. Now, I will tell you as your pastor, having studied this, this text is one of the greatest controversies in all the Old Testament. What sea are we talking about? It's often translated as the Red Sea. The word, I can assure you in the Hebrew, is reed, the reed sea. People say, well, this, this crossing the Red Sea would be impossible. And uh, there's, there's pretty fantastical imaginations on YouTube of how men have imagined that they cross the Red Sea. Now, let me just tell you about the Red Sea. We're talking about the Red Sea. It's still called the Red Sea today. It's roughly 1,200 miles long, excluding the gulfs that are on it. It varies in width from 124 miles to 155 miles. And its average depth is 1,600 feet. And this minimum depth is 600 feet. And at its deepest, it is 7,700 feet. And the sides of the Red Sea plunge downward at 45 degree angles. Now, God is the God of the impossible. And people have come up with all kinds of ways to suggest that he somehow did something that they crossed the Red Sea. And I don't doubt his ability to do all his holy will. But the geographical realities of the Red Sea just don't fit the biblical account here. When we remember the word really is reed, it's the reed sea. And, and this should, in some sense, should remind us of something. What, what was it uh, that uh, happened with Moses as an infant? His mother gathered reeds, and she made a basket, a, a coffin, literally, as the text told us, and she placed her son in it and, and put him in the river Nile because Pharaoh had commanded that all the male children were to be thrown into the Nile that they should drown and be destroyed. It was a place of reeds. And now we find Israel at the Reed Sea. You've heard me read the rest of the text. What's going to happen to the armies of Egypt? 
their sons, their grown-up men, but in the Reed Sea, they're going to drown. Children, remember talking about irony when we were in the book of John? There's, there's an irony here. The Lord is at work. So, a reed sea. The other thing is that reeds grow in fresh water. And as I said last week, we were talking about these places where they went out to um, Piharioth and Baalzephon, and, and there's a sea there. They're camping by this sea. And, and we're not sure where these places are. They're, they're, it's lost in history as to the precise place where they are. And there's a number of lakes, sizable lakes, in northern Egypt in that region consistent with where they could have traveled to. And this in no way undermines the, the, the supernatural events that occur at this time. This water that is before them, the sea as it's called, it's, it's, it's a significant lake, thus it's called a sea. And God commands Moses then to raise his rod that evening, and all that night the Lord sends a strong east wind. And with this God then sends a wind that push back the waters to the north and to the south, the wind coming from the east, pushing the waters back. And again, the language you describe it, this, we're not talking about him opening up a little path. There's a great host of millions that's got to pass through. That I imagine that the reality was that God pushed back the waters that you had a path that may have been a kilometer, you know, something even approaching to close to a mile wide. So this great mass of humanity could pass over in a matter of hours in the in in space of a day. And so God used the wind and pushed back the waters and he piled them up. The scripture tells us that they were as, as a wall. I don't know how he did that. Again, I, in reading, I heard some fantastical accounts about how the wind blowing that way would make it super cold, and so then that water froze into an ice wall, and I just there's all kinds of stuff. It's like we're talking about God who speaks things into existence that don't exist, and for He can send a wind, and He has the power. He, he rules over the winds and the wave, and even in the beginning, when the creation, what do we read? God spoke and he separated the waters from the earth, from the dry land. And as a matter of fact, the word here that they walked on is that same, the dry land. God supernaturally sent a wind that pushed the water back and there were walls of water on either side and there was dry land. It wasn't muddy. It wasn't murky. It was dry land. That's exactly what the text says. And it was a wide path. And that great host of millions with all their livestock took uh, the cross. And that's what verse 22 tells us. So the children of Israel went into the midst of the sea on dry ground, and the waters were a wall to them on the right hand and on the left hand. Can you imagine being an Israelite that day? Just you know, try to stretch your imagination you know, you wake up in the morning, and here's this path across the sea. The situation seemed impossible. There's a sea before you. The army's behind you. God's put a cloud. You're feeling protected. But how are we going to go on? And you wake up in the morning, and here's this path across the sea. And, and, and Moses' command is, cross over. And they go. Can you imagine walking? I, I, I think of like a child. Which one of you children would want to walk over and kind of touch that wall of water? 
You know, we might say, well, what did it feel like? I mean, could you see the fish swimming around in it? I mean, that's just our imagination to think of things. But nonetheless, it's, it's a wall. God supernaturally has held back and created a dry path that as people go forward and that they escape when it seemed impossible. He's the Lord of creation and he commands the waters of the heavens and the earth. My brothers and sisters, let's think about this in our lives. Here's an application for us. Let us never doubt the power and the ability of our God to deliver us out of what seems impossible. I love the children's catechism. There's, I don't know, unbelievers speculate. Well, can God make a rock so big he can't lift it? The children's catechism gives us a nice answer. God can do all his holy will. And this was his holy will. He piled up the waters. And my friends, he's able to do all his holy will in your life as well. Think back what we heard at the end of John's gospel. Jesus, the man who had healed the sick, and raised the dead, was betrayed by one of his own. They, they seized him. They came with guards and torches in the, in the night. They seized him. They led him away. They put him on trial. It was a, a sham trial. And they condemned him to death on a Roman cross. They, they manipulated Pilate into doing their will, weak as he was. How can this be? John the Baptist proclaimed before he anointed Christ as Messiah, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is the one who took a few small fish and five loaves and fed thousands. How can this be? He's, he's the one who declared that he was the Son of God, that he did the will of his Father. He only spoke what he heard his father speaking, and there he is, suspended on a Roman cross between heaven and earth. And he cries out, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And he yields up his spirit to the Father and dies. But the expectation was he came into the world to save sinners that he was to be a great king, that he was going to sit on David's throne. This moment seems impossible. If there's ever a moment in history that seems impossible, this moment seems impossible. Crossing the sea seems like, you know, not to be disrespectful, but child's play in comparison. What? What? And, and how? A savior? How can he be a savior? He's, he's dead. Remember how they, they mocked him. If you're the son of God, then, then come down. You saved others. But instead, Joseph of Arimathea took down his body and with the help of Nicodemus, they, they laid him in a tomb. The disciples had scattered. At some point, they gather in an upper room. You can imagine that they had more questions than the Israelites on the edge of the sea. 
It all just seemed apostle. We, we believed that he was the son of God. And yet, this was the plan of God from the, before the foundation of the world. That Christ would be crucified. That he would send his son. That it was to be through his living and obedient and righteous life and then dying a death in the place of his people to receive the wrath of God to pay for their sin that he would drink the full dregs of God's wrath from the cup. And when it seemed that all was lost, actually the victory was won. He had defeated Satan he had destroyed the power of sin over his people. And indeed, that's what was proved on that first Sunday morning. He broke forth from the grave. It was impossible that he should be kept there. And he was triumphant over his foes. You think of the prophets and the kings were told that they prophesied of these things and they know some of these things. And it's you know, we just went through the book of Isaiah not that long ago. And you're like, how, how does that work? He's cut off from the land of the living and he had no offspring. And then, and then we read later that he has a whole host of offspring. You see, it's just God doing what is the impossible. What seemed impossible when Christ lay in the tomb was God's plan for the greatest victory ever won. It was God's plan, not man's plan. And he accomplished it. Well, we want to consider, thirdly, the Lord's path of destruction. Yeah, path of destruction. Verse 23 suggests that the cloud was lifted then. You know, at some point, as the Israelites have been, been crossing over, at some point, uh, the Egyptians are able to pursue. The darkness is no longer there. And, and what they do, they went in after them. You know, perhaps they just see the tail end of the Israelites making their way up the other side, and they see this dry path and the walls of water. They don't understand it. But in they go. They're on a mission. We've got to retrieve these people. We've got to bring them back. We have to have our slaves. And so the Egyptians pursued them. And they went into the midst of the sea. All Pharaoh's horses, his chariots and his horsemen. Notice, it's important to understand, and I'll bring this up later, the entire army of Egypt did not go in. But the chariots, which were the fastest, they're all in there. They got the speed. They go in. They're pursuing them. And now it came to pass in the morning watch... The Lord is also looking, and he looked down upon the army of the Egyptian through the pillar of fire and cloud. We know that it represents him. Certainly it does not encompass him because God is greater than all of creation. But in some sense, he's present with them. That's what the pillar of cloud represents, his presence with them. And he looks down, and he sees the Egyptians racing after his people. And then what does it say at the end of verse 24? It's loaded he troubled the army of the Egyptians. Has he not troubled Egypt a lot? Think about all the plagues, flies and frogs and lice, hail and locusts, darkness, plagues on their animals. He troubled the armies of Egypt. And, and it gets a little more specific. Moses tells us, and he took off the chariot wheels. The, the, the chariot wheels, I mean, these are fine-made chariots. This, this is the best that Pharaoh's got, and, and the wheels come off. So they drove them with difficulty. That's an understatement. You think about a heavy battle chariot with no wheels, you know, it'd be like trying to drag, drag you know, trees through the woods. 
I mean, it just is incredible. He troubled them. The Egyptians, remember Pharaoh is the one that's full of arrogance and thinks he's God and sovereign and all that. The Egyptians, they get it. The Egyptians said, let us flee from the face of Israel for the Lord fights for them against the Egyptians. The Egyptians have had enough already, but they were obedient soldiers, and so there they are. They are fearful. Can you imagine this? These chariots, wheels that come off. They're on this path going across the sea. It might remind you of a rush hour traffic going up through Providence on I-95. In the afternoon, you know, just, it's just all bogged down. There's no movement. Everybody's just stuck, especially when there's an accident. Well, they've had more than an accident. The wheels have come off the chariots. It's just clogged up in a major way. Pharaoh may have been dull and stupefied by sin, but his men quickly figured out what's happening. God is fighting for his people. Those men saw the God of the Hebrews as capable of doing this. How many of them were still grieved over the loss of their firstborn son? And they understood that it was the God of the Hebrews who had done that. Verse 26, and the Lord speaks to Moses. What does he tell him? Then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand over the sea, that the waters may come back upon the Egyptians, and on the chariots, and on the horsemen. And then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and when the morning appeared, the sea returned to its full depth, while the Egyptians were fleeing into it. So there's still some pouring in. You got them out there in the middle, their wheels off their chariots. They're still coming on. And then by the Lord's command, the waters collapse. That which was walls of water supernaturally held back suddenly just rush in. Y'all have been to the sea. We live in the ocean today, right? You imagine two great big waves, two halves of the sea coming together and hitting in the middle and... That had to be impressive. That's what happened. And they returned to the full depth while the Egyptians were fleeing into it. And then here's the key thing. So the Lord overthrew the Egyptians in the midst of the sea. What had been a way of escape for Israel what was a path to Liberty and salvation for them became a path of destruction for the Egyptians. Now, just a brief aside here, not to make too much of this, but we believe the scriptures teach the proper mode of baptism is by sprinkling or pouring. And it's worthy to note that the Egyptians were immersed in the water as judgment. And if you think back to the book of Genesis, what do you find there? God brings judgment upon all of humanity. And how does he do so? With a flood that immerses all of humanity underwater. I've had conversations with my Baptist brothers about that. I think it's worth noting. Whereas Paul tells us, 
that the Israelites who crossed through those walls of water on either side, that the Israelites were baptized into Moses by the cloud and the sea. They became Moses' followers. They united to him. And the waters there pictured salvation for Israel and destruction for Egypt. Moses makes that very clear in verse 29. But the children of Israel had walked on the dry land in the midst of the sea. See, it's the contrast. We just hear how they're destroyed. But the children of Israel had walked on the dry ground in the midst of the sea, and the waters were a wall um, to, to them on the right hand and on the left. For them, the wall was, there were walls. It was a way of escape, but to Egypt, it was the way of destruction. Once more, an application. Let's cast our eyes again back to Jerusalem. The sun has set. Joseph and Nicodemus have completed the burial of their beloved Lord. The Pharisees, I'm speculating here, and I don't think it's unwarranted, have gathered to celebrate that they were finally rid of that troubler of Israel. That's what Ahab said of Elijah the prophet. He was finally dead. Long had they sought to be rid of him. And you can imagine them celebrating with delight. There's going to be no more arguments that he always won. No more masses of people hanging on his every eloquent word. No more of his blasphemous, in their minds, statements that he was the son of God. They had won. The cross was his ruin. He was crucified like a criminal. To them, it seemed like the victory. The cross seemed like the victory. And for him, it seemed to them as a defeat. And yet, the cross was the defeat of all that is evil. To speculate a little bit more, we can think of Satan gloating over the reality that he has succeeded in using useful idiots to nail the Son of God to a cross. We won't speculate on what sort of demonic festivities might have taken place. To them, it appeared as the destruction of their enemy was complete. He was in a tomb. And yet, the exact opposite was true. Even as we see here, the wall, water on either side was for Israel deliverance. And yet for Egypt, it was for destruction. And as so it was, the death of Christ was only but a bruising of his heel, as was foretold in Genesis 3.15. What God had done on the cross was to secure salvation for his people, a sinful people, an unworthy people, an undeserving people, and yet a people he had given to his son before the foundation of the world. And on the cross he secured that salvation. What seemed to be an impossibility, how in the world can you save sinners through the death of the Son of God, and yet it was a reality. Christ's death purchased salvation for all those whom the Father had given to him. The result was the defeat and the destruction of Satan. What he thought was his victory and his triumph became his undoing and the undoing of his kingdom. Jesus Christ then plundered the kingdom of darkness and set the captives free. He brought them out of darkness into the pure light of himself. He removed dead hearts 
and he made them alive. As the prophet has said, I will take out the heart of stone and give you a living heart of flesh. He delivered rebels who were in rebellion against God, and he gave them to the Father as redeemed children, accomplishing the Father's will. What a contrast. Well, what was the impact on Israel? Fourthly, we see that there are the Lord's lessons for his people. Verses 30 and 31 serve something like a, a summary of the events to this point. It's as though Moses wraps this up. Verse 30 tells us that the Israelites saw this happen. You saw the destruction. So the Lord saved Israel out of that, hand, that day out of the hand of the Egyptians. And Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. It was very obvious. They saw the outcome. They saw the completion of it. Some have suggested that the Hebrews went and stripped the bodies of weapons of war. That's possible because later on we find them at battle. Not that much longer after this. And they have some weapons of war. Perhaps they did. Those bodies that washed up on the shore stripped them of their swords and so And indeed, we can understand that, as I said earlier, the chariots would have moved swiftly. The foot soldiers, the marching army, would have still been making their way. And it is very reasonable that, that some of them went home. And they would announce what had happened back in Egypt. Because what happened there spread throughout all the lands. There's no internet, there's no newspaper, and yet the word of what happened there was so monumental so significant, God in his power so clearly displayed that he was with his people, that he was protecting them, that the word went out so that when they end up outside of Jericho and the spies end up spending the night with in Rahab's house, she's heard about what happened there. And she talks about the fear that is in the whole city of Jericho as well as the other lands of that place. The fear of the Lord spread to all the nations. But what Moses really wants us to note is the impact on Israel. Verse 31 says, Thus Israel saw the great work which the Lord had done in Egypt. The way that's written, it's not just that. He's talking about the great work which was done in Egypt, everything that he had done to Egypt, from the plagues all the way to this moment, that the Israel saw the great work which the Lord had done in Egypt, to Egypt. And so the people feared the Lord and believed the Lord and his servant Moses. Verse 31 speaks of the mighty acts of our God. We've been hearing about them. Can you trust the Lord? Is he able to do all his holy will? Remember what the theme of the book of Exodus is that we've been keeping before us. The Lord is making himself known. The Lord's making himself known to Pharaoh initially, to Egypt then as well. But he's also making himself known to Israel. As the plagues unfolded, he was making himself known to them. But this act, what are we told? They believed the Lord and they believed his servant Moses. Now the question is, is this saving faith? Remember the book of John, um, chapter 2, Jesus had done mighty signs and wonders and said that the people believed in him. 
but it was clear that that was not saving faith, at least for the majority. They believed he was a miracle worker. And it seems to me that we have something similar here, that they believed in the Lord. They believed in the power of their God, the power of God to deliver and save them. And I want to believe that there was also a remnant that truly believed on the Lord Jesus Christ or on the promises of God. Like Abraham, their father, they believed God and it was accounted to them as righteousness, that they were justified in the sight of the Lord. It's hard to be certain of that, but it seems so. Because as we move forward, you find in the midst of this great host that there are those who are faithful. You think of Phineas, you think of Joshua, Caleb. These are just a few names, representing many that believed the Lord. They believed more than that God was powerful. They believed that he was God and their salvation and son Savior. The text also says they had fear of him. As we'll see, the record will go on to show that that fear of him did not last long. Young children, you understand this. Children, you know that when you've disobeyed your daddy and he's coming with discipline, you have fear. But how long does that fear last? How long before you're disobeying again? So it was with Israel. They had fear of the Lord for the moment, but as we will soon see, it did not last. But the scripture tells us that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, and thus we should grow in it. Well, as we conclude then, we say all the children of, as, of the first Adam, as the children of the first Adam, we can place ourselves in difficult spots without any help from anybody else. Right? I mean, sometimes there's circumstances that you know, seem beyond our control and we feel trapped, but some, more often than not, we create our own situations. We, we have the sea before us and the army behind us. seems as though we have nowhere to go, no escape. seems like we're going to certainly be overtaken and destroyed. Well, this account was written for our instruction, so let us learn. The Lord is faithful to care for his people. He's faithful to care for his people. And he is able to deliver. Remember what happened here at the Reed Sea. Remember Daniel when he was thrown into the den full of lions. The Lord delivered him. Remember his Hebrew friends that we talked about a week or two ago. Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah thrown into the fiery furnace. And the Lord delivered them supernaturally. God is able to deliver his people. In our day, more often than not, he works through means. But I've heard enough accounts here and there through my lifetime that I think the Lord does supernatural things at times. So what else should we learn? Fear the Lord. Fear the Lord with all your heart and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, not just as a miracle worker. Believe on him as he is, the Savior of sinners who came to give salvation to the sons of Adam. The truth of us is that each of us is more of a, in more of a terrifying situation than what Israel was beside the sea. Because it has been appointed unto man once to die and then the judgment. And as sinners, we have no help in ourselves. To stand on the brink of hell 
the mouth of hell yawning wide, a just God before us. There is no deliverance. It's too late. But to be found in Christ by faith, you'll never stand on the brink of hell. You stand at the judgment seat of Christ and he will speak on your behalf. Father, I've paid for this one. I was a substitute. My, my blood on the mercy seat was spilled for this one. This one's mine. This is one of your children. And we will hear the words, enter into the rest prepared for you since the beginning of time. So what Jesus promised. I'm going to prepare a place for you. And if I'm going to prepare a place for you, I will come again. That you, where I am there, you may be also. And so when we face fearful things, let us remember. In the end, we are delivered. And that's why we sing those wonderful words. Low in the grave here, where we lay. But then up from the grave, he arose. Triumphant over his foes. Amen. Let us pray. Lord our God, we do thank you and praise you. That you are a God of mercy and grace, a God who is able to deliver even more than we can imagine. Father, we could probably fellowship now for several hours and recount times in our lives when all seemed lost, all seemed impossible, and that you were there, and you intervened, and you delivered. Lord, we give you the glory for that. We have never faced a sea or an army, yet we have seen your hand faithful to deliver us from all our foes. And that we have that great confidence that in the end, that final day of judgment, that because of Christ, we are delivered out from under the wrath of the living God and into the glorious blessing of eternity in heaven with you. We thank you for this in Jesus' name. Amen.